Hi, and welcome to this week's Realty Talk Show. Well, this week, we want to feature some of the highlights from our Q&A webinar from earlier this week, where I invited our panel to answer questions about Western Australia and a potential imbalance between investors and owner-occupiers, whether to chase yield or growth, or maybe both, what's on the horizon if Labor get negative gearing under the microscope again, and I have to say that the panel really don't agree on that issue. We answer a couple of listener questions as well about data and getting cash flow. All that coming up in the show shortly. Hey, if this is your first time with us, welcome. You're going to find us on all podcast players and through the Southern Cross Oz Stereo Network. If you like the show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Help us to continue to bring you the best guests every week. Join the conversation too anytime on Facebook. You'll find it at the Property Hub Collective. We'll be back in just a moment as we kick off this week's show. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Realty Talk from Property Hub on all podcast players. Okay, well, let's start this week's show by introducing our Property Hub Collective panel. Eddie does the honours for us. We've got Bushy Martin. So Bushy's the, uh, the founder of uh, Know How Property and he's uh, helping hardworking Aussies define and, and achieve their financial freedom. We've got uh, Rusty Vebal. Uh, he was uh, with us from India last time, I believe. He's now back in Australia. He's the founder of Get Rare Properties. Uh, they're much more than buyer's agent and, um, and using a holistic approach uh, for everything property investing. And of course, we've got uh, Kevin Turner. Kevin is going to be the driver of, the, of this show once more. And he's the, the man behind the hugely popular Property Hub podcast that uh, comes out every week. Okay, team. Well, uh, let, let's get cracking. Um, always at this time of month, uh, there's a lot of speculation about the RBA announcement and conflicting thoughts about whether or not it's going to move up, down, sideways, stay where it is. And I, I thought rather than predict what is likely to happen, can you just give us a bit of an idea about what the board considers when they make that decision. We might kick off with you, uh, Bushy, what do you reckon? Absolutely, mate. Well, there's really six key indicators that the RBA takes into account. Uh, three major ones, which include the rate of inflation and the rate of inflation, uh, I'll, perhaps I'll just go through them quickly and then I'll put some detail on But the rate of inflation is the key driver. Uh, unemployment levels tied to wage growth is also an important thing they have a look at. Uh, and then beyond that, they look at the overall global and local national economic outlook. Uh, they have a good look at uh, indicators around consumer and business confidence. And, of course, the state of the housing market does play uh, very squarely into, the, into their decision-making. So uh, I, th I think, the again, the good news from where we sit from compared to what we were talking about uh, in our first get-together, uh, the uh, target range for inflation uh, is in the sort of 2 to 3% range. Uh, the uh, unemployment rate target there is around 4.5%. 
And we're heading in the right direction on both of those major drivers. So the I think the current inflation rates uh, just shy of uh, 5% and, and falling, uh, which is good news. And the unemployment rate uh, is currently sitting around there at 38 to 3.9% uh, with uh, you know the target of getting it up to 4.5% before they seriously start to think about uh, starting to reduce rates, which, which uh, as you've already said, Kevin, every man and his dog's got a view on where that's going. But if you round up the medians on that, there's a pretty fair chance that somewhere between September and December this year, we'll start to see our rates drop again. Mm. Rusty, your thoughts on that? Among those expectors, which Bushy mentioned, I would also think that um, the, the play of the currency would also have a bit of play, especially when US starts cutting their interest rate on their side. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting perspective you bring there, I think, Rusty, and that is that the international influence, and I, I think Bushy really took us through a lot of the local triggers. Um, does anyone want to comment on on how much uh, of an influence, you know, the RBA will look at what's happening overseas or is it purely what's happening within, well, think, you know, within yeah, Australia? I'll jump in really quick. I think, I mean, first of all, it wouldn't be a, an easy job to be deciding on all this because there's so many variables and so many things in play. So if you get something right, then something else falls apart. It's just, you know, economics, I guess. But yeah, the mm. US and Europe, obviously their rates went up before our rates and therefore the, the cash rate went up as well. The inflation is coming down pretty dramatically. Obviously, the, the Fed, interestingly enough, um, everyone thought that they were going to start cutting in March. It seems like it may not be the case and they might wait a bit more and see what happens. So, yeah, no, it is, it is interesting. I mean, it's, it's not different to anything. I guess the, the RB, as much as they're looking at all the indicators that Bushy said, you know, like Rusty mentioned, they would be looking at overseas because they're ahead of us, so to speak, and therefore see what they're doing and how they're doing it. We have had a question come in from, uh, from Tasmania, actually. Welcome, Jonathan. It's good to have you on the show, too. Um, uh, Jonathan asks, assuming that I invested in residential property, how will I ever be able to get the cash flow needed when the time comes? Rusty might go to you on that one. Yeah, so if the question is that how do I get the cash flow out from a residential property investing, so it's basically what I'm hearing is that how do we go about getting some positive cash flow out of the property, or, or maybe it might be the lump sum, which probably comes down to the selling of the property, uh, I guess so. I'll probably hope that it is more of a former interpretation, which is like, how do I change it into a positive cash flow property when the interest rates are so high? So I've always said that it's it's property investing, especially when we are really talking about residential property investing, is more so for the capital growth as a strategic, uh, I guess, the investment philosophy. Uh, but for someone who's really invested, not really a matter of really taking care of the property and in terms of maybe doing some refurbishments, maybe some doing some bit of renovation, or maybe thinking about, like I'm not really a big fan personally of a short-term rentals because it really depends on the locality and whether it's really suitable. But for someone who has actually run Airbnb business, that has really, really worked for them. But again, it's really a high strategy, high, high risk strategy out there. Um, but there's also a rooming concept that how do we go about changing the current so four better into a more of a, I guess, renting the room individually. But again, there's a lot of compliance required. The easy one out there would be more around, I guess, 
trying to uplift the property, whether it's a cosmetic renovation, maybe talking about uh, just checking the rates, going on the uh, rental rates, because in good parts of Australia, rents have really gone up recently. So it's really a matter of catching up on the market rental um, as um, that could be a one thing. And other aspect would be uh, to really go and negotiate with the bank, uh, whether what sort of rates we are talking about. As an example, like are refinancing of a whole loan uh, book and uh, the current lenders are really, when we were talking about discharge form, they're like, no, 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 hold on. We'll give you this much uh, interest uh, cut. And um, so that, that certainly is one of the opportunities whereby we can really talk to a mortgage broker, maybe someone like Bushy out here, uh, that what is really the interest rate that a company market rates that we can really go for negotiating on them um, and maybe increasing the uh, rental in the property. This is a conversation I actually have with investors just about every day of the week, guys. Uh, and very simply, uh, I think there's a big misnomer in the property investing sphere that you just invest in properties, pay off the debt and live off the rent because you're never going to be in a position to retire on the rent. So uh, the, the real key here, and it's what I call a, a wealth by stealth approach where you you go for capital growth and make it affordable through clever structuring, and then you convert your portfolio to cash flow in the couple of years before and the couple of years after you're looking to stop work or reduce work. Because what property is very good at doing in Australia, given it is the highest growth asset that people can get their hands on, is building that nest egg level. But uh, so when we get into that run up in the financial years immediately before and after, and again, you need a really good a property accountant and a really good financial planner to help you in this transition to retirement piece, then you need to rationalize those high growth assets and convert them into higher cash flow assets. So in a, in a typical example, uh, most investors, when they're going for growth, uh, they will secure three or four bedroom homes in tightly held high demand suburbs. And then when we do that transition to convert to cash flow, uh, we do a rationalisation of partial sell-down, elimination of debt uh, wherever possible, and then convert that nest egg uh, and do it very carefully so we're not giving too much back in capital gains tax or, or other tax impacts, and convert them then into very simple high-yielding cash flow assets that don't take a lot of your time to manage, like a mix of index funds, it might be commercial properties, or high-yielding units and apartments. So it's just about being careful about how and when you convert those assets to minimise those uh, tax impacts and then make sure you've got the right team around you well in advance. And, and the key people there are the accountant, the financial planner, and, and an investment savvy, savvy mortgage broker to then make sure you're pulling the right trigger at the right time to keep as much of that hard-earned in your pocket and then convert that into... Uh, sort of low, low required managed cash flow assets that they're going to actually fund your lifestyle ongoing. Because I think the key thing while you're holding growth properties is to be very clever around the structuring of that property uh, so that it becomes affordable growth. And what I mean by affordable growth is if you've bought in the right entity, if you've structured the finance in the right way, if you're taking advantage of depreciation, and uh, you're using things like uh, withholding tax variations and other exercises that can really smooth the cash flow holding of the property so it becomes sustainable to hold that property long term, then suddenly it's not impacting on salary savings and lifestyle and you can sit back and uh, allow that property to do its thing and then convert it at the, at the other end. So you know, what you buy the property in, uh, how you set up the finance and who you finance it with, 
making sure that you're buying properties that uh, not only have the, the the best yield you can get, but also you can apply the depreciation benefits to it. And then using things like the uh, withholding tax variations, where you know it's, it's not uncommon for a, uh, a residential home to to give someone roughly ten grand back a year as a tax credit. Now, if that's if that is converted to rather than a lump sum at the end of the year, but you get that back every week with your pay, that's one hundred and ninety one bucks extra you've got in your pay packet that can go a long way to smoothing any any deficit or impact that it's having on on that ability to hold the the property long term. So. Uh, so does that sort of answer the question, Kevin? Oh, well and truly, mate. And I, Jonathan, I, I hope you made a note of all that. There was so much gold in those, in those comments from the team. And when we return, I'm going to ask the panel about the potential imbalance between owner-occupiers and investors in Western Australia. Stay with us. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. KnowHow has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less, and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au. Realty Talk exclusive to The Property Hub. Let's rejoin the panel as I ask, with a lot of noise around investing in WA, should we be worried that the percentage of investors versus owner-occupiers is being skewed? Let's start with Rusty. Should I be concerned whether it's a, there's a tipping point coming over? Of course, I should be concerned. Would there be a, the, the split between uh, home and occupiers and rental uh, renters? Of course, that's certainly one of the data points that the question that you were talking about before, Kevin, is certainly we look at. But I think I'll probably take a step back and just first of all make a comment that there's no such thing called WA market. Like there is no such thing as I'm going to buy a state. Like I'm not going to buy an ETF equivalent of WA market. So it really comes down to where in WA we are referring to, what type of property we are talking about, what is the segmentation or, or fragmentation of that market is, and then what we are looking at. Of course, it goes back to the previous point that when you are buying, what is it that individual is looking for? And then are we able to get it? So when if you really think from the perspective of a buyer yes we need to be mindful of the return expectations as well as the risk around it so yes there is a huge uh, i guess return expectations building up for obvious reasons uh, which probably we'll talk about in a minute about supply and demand and how do we go about tracking it infrastructure spending and whatnot but it, when it comes to the risk of course one of those elements that we look at is that how much number of like as a breakup of that small fragmented market, what is the split between renters and owner occupiers? Typically, as an average, if I really talk about the statistics Australia-wide, it's pretty much one-third, 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 as in one-third fully owner-occupied properties, one-third tenanted, and one-third when there is a mortgage going on. Now, for those who uh, want to understand the basis why it's important is, is that when it is a rising market. It doesn't really matter how much, how many renters as a percentage are there. 
But when the market is going sideways or going down backwards, then if the economy is not doing so well, and as an example, if I'm an investor and I have, a, I have a, my own home to live in, and I am in dire need of some finances or I need some cash, the property that I'll be selling of the two would be my investment property. Now, an investment property, investment property which is of investment grade, is probably very much liked by an other investor. And the reason that I'm selling the property might be the reason that the other investors doesn't really get too excited about it. So essentially what I'm really referring to here is that when the average is about one third of property investors in the market as an average, when it makes a kind of a balance, um, it, it is good uh, as, a, as a matrix that when the number is a bit lower and then the risk gets higher and higher when the renters build up in that market. So specifically coming back to the question, should we be worried about it? Yes, we should be worried about it, but it's not being worried about getting worried about the WA market. It's more about the particular segment, the particular uh, neighborhood, or even not even the suburb, but the neighborhood, the street that we are talking about. That really, uh, if we, as a buyer's agent, we tend to go for the properties, of course, which are in the right region, whereby the supply and demand uh, equation is more in the favor of long-term growth as well as the sentiment is playing in favor of the buyer because we don't really want to just buy for the long-term benefits, but also for the sake of that kicker, the momentum play of the short to mid-term growth as well. Now, while we are eyeing the growth on one, on one aspect, we need to be mindful of the risk we are happy to take as a risk-adjusted returns. Now, if there is a lower percentage of renters in that area, we are very excited. But if statistically, yes, the thing is that talking some data like a couple of years ago, almost one-tenth of the property investors were buying in WA. But for the reasons of the, the affordable affordability, the high yield rate, the infrastructure spending, lots of investors really took notice of WA market. Now, almost one of the three investors are buying in WA. So of course, the split or, or, or the number of renters are growing but it's not to the point whereby it's close to the tipping point. I mean, it's far yeah. beyond that point. So I'm not too worried personally. And again, it's not really about WA. It's more about the particular neighborhood that we should be looking at. Yes, there are pockets mm -hmm. whereby we will not touch for the same reason. But then, then statistically, there are very good areas out there where we would happily buy for ourselves or for our clients. Very good team. Um, I'll, I'll keep moving on because shortly I want to discuss lending. Um, and uh, as I said at the top of the show, lending constraints and, and their impact on investors. Just before we do that, can I can I just throw it open? We'll start with you, Bushy. I think with, with rates as high as they are, um, should I be looking at high yield or high growth or is it possible to get both? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, and again, I think rates are a bit of a misnomer because they're only one factor in a whole a kaleidoscope of factors that you need to take into account when you're investing. But in a sentence, uh, again, reverting back to what I mentioned before with the wealth by stealth approach over the long term, you need to go for affordable growth and then convert to that cash flow. So, you know, most investors uh, who are particularly investing in the first five to 10 years need to build their portfolio by focusing on growth. And uh, there is a real danger, and I've seen a lot of investors in the past make this mistake, where they chase yield 
But because the yield ultimately, you know, once you take out all of your expenses, it's probably going to put somewhere between $10 and $50 a week in your pocket. But at the same time, it's chew it's chewing up a big chunk of your buying capacity, which means that whether you're buying yield or growth, you're probably going to max out at uh, two or three properties for, for most people in the current environment. So uh, you're really going to, and if there's no growth attached to that high yield property, uh, then you're really hamstringing yourself uh, to the point where when it gets to the other end of the journey and you haven't got that nest egg that you convert, then times are going to be pretty tough. So uh, I don't think it's just a rate discussion. Uh, I think you've got to look at that more overall in, in the context of all the factors that we've touched on already tonight. Uh, but I would always go for growth and then convert to cash flow later on, but make it affordable by those things that we mentioned before. So make sure that you're uh, you know, at least getting it as close to cash flow neutral as you possibly can using the right ownership entity through a good accountant by uh, making sure that finance is really cleverly structured, uh, both from a risk and capacity and a cost perspective, and then using depreciation and the benefits that a good accountant can bring to the table in terms of the cash flow uh, exercises to make sure that you're still getting reasonable uh, cash flow while you're securing a property that's going to go up in growth long term. Yeah, the message is quite consistent, isn't it? Those those key areas that you talk about there, Bushy, and I've heard everyone on this panel say very similar things. And, you know, it's a fine balance, but the, the formula doesn't really change. Uh, Rasti, uh, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just want to, uh, first of all, agree to what Bushy has said, but also have a different perspective uh, on that, if, if I may. Um, now, we are really talking about, I guess, capital, uh, a growth asset here, which is typically we should be buying for the growth. But of course, because there's a leverage involved that we are borrowing money, the holding cost is a bit higher. So we need to be mindful of those expenses or out-of-pocket expenses. And that's where the concept of affordable growth comes into play, which Bush is uh, referring to. Where I would like to add on to it is that what's affordable to me might be a bit different to affordability of someone else. So I would be really bringing that personalization of that someone who's trying to buy, and that really is, 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 really is dependent on their circumstances, their risk appetite, their cash buffer, their, I guess, surplus sitting in their pocket, while we discuss whether it is good for them to buy for the capital growth or for the high yield. As an example, for someone who is probably earning a bit decent income and paying say 40% or 50% tax marginal tax rate, and they have surplus equity or money sitting in their pocket, I would say, and they're early in the stages of wealth accumulation, I would say hands down, go for all in for capital growth, uh, kind of uh, audited property. For someone who is in their preservation stage whereby they build their asset, they are really very much relying on the cash flow where they are about to go in the stage whereby they have to rely on the cash flow and they're about to switch from accumulation stage to preservation, I would be saying hands down to go for cash flow oriented property. Depending where the person is and the affordability definition, I think it should be more strategic around it. Eddie, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, uh, just as from an investor's point of view, I guess, and uh, I mean, everyone on the panel is an investor, I guess I'm probably the the freshest of uh, of all, uh, I I would assume. So you know, look, it's it's hard to have a long term view sometimes uh, because you know what you see is every fortnight you get paid and you see that cash in your bank account or you see your, your bank account balance. I guess 
And so, but you know, it comes down to the strategy. I mean, growth definitely, you know, hundred percent. You gotta, you know, you gotta grow your nest egg to whatever it needs to be, and then you can think about cash flow. So, you know, hundred percent agree with all this. I guess it's not easy, and it's a, it's a matter for advisors to uh, make them visualize what it looks like, uh, so that they can get a picture. We're not very good. Human beings are not very good. Typically, thinking 15, 20 years ahead. Uh, it's 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 too far away, right? There's, I've got a thousand problems today or tomorrow, and that's what I need to deal with. So, so the, that visualization is paramount to you know, so the investor understand what what they are, you know, what they, they get themselves into. I guess. Rusty, yeah. Now this is good. I just want to add one more aspect of it because we tend to overlook that aspect, and that is that not. I mean, if we figure it out, what's the current exact profile of that probably should be. We need to be mindful that there's a portfolio approach. We don't really have to buy all the properties with the same profile, but rather go with the element of risk diversification by buying properties of different types. As an example, only as an example, if I buy a one cash flow oriented property and then I buy another property which is capital growth intensive property, but when I really took take that take it as a portfolio, as a combination of the property, I'm actually right in smack in between, which is really giving me the balance or the, the combined effect of a balanced portfolio. So I guess it really comes down to what we're talking about as strategic thinking and then having a right brief for an individual property and how it plays out in the portfolio based on the individuals or the family circumstances. So it's a portfolio approach as well. Property needs to be taken into account with the existing portfolio and what they will be buying eventually later on, mm. along with their risk on their jobs and other aspects as well. I, I think the, yeah, flowing on from all of that, you make a really good comment at the investor level, Eddie, and that is uh, to really help you with that visualization, make sure you're working with independent professionals who are actually putting numbers around what this looks like today, five years, 10 years, 15 and 20. So you're making fully informed decisions on what's the property likely to grow, what's the actual net cost per week that this property is going to either put in my pocket or burn a hole in my pocket in year one, three, five, 10, 15 and beyond. So you're going in making fully informed decisions rather than a, a stab in the dark and the fear that goes with, well, I'm not really sure how much this thing's going to cost me long term. So uh, again, I, I can't reinforce enough the need to get surround yourself with independent professionals in each and every area who are active investors themselves who can actually put numbers around this uh, to actually give you that visual illustration of exactly the best, worst and likely case that's going to happen to that property. And, and then you're going in with a, a pretty good idea. And make sure also that you've before you invest, you've got a substantial rainy day reserve through either equity or savings. So that if you lose your job, you get hit by a bus, something happens to the property, you're never putting yourself in a situation where it's financially scary and uh, you're not able to uh, maintain the property and you, you're forced to make a knee-jerk decision. When we return, the panel will discuss investment hurdles caused by lending constraints and if now is a good time to consider other investment categories. Stay with us. Hi, just before we go back to the show, uh, I want to spend a few seconds and tell you about a book that was sent to me that's now become my go-to reference when I'm looking for inspiration about property investment. You know, sometimes it's not about knowing all the answers. It's certainly more important to know what questions to ask. 
This book by Rasti uh, is called The Property Wealth Blueprint. And it's one that you don't read just once and then put it away. It stays out as a reference. It's a book that you go back to time and time again, as I do, because it's packed with personal experience and with great examples of how to get property investment right. Uh, it's very frank, it's to the point. And as you can see here, uh, I've needed to bookmark several points. And I can tell you that it's a constant companion on my desk here. The remarkable thing is that it's absolutely free on Rasty's website, getrare.com.au. Get Rare, it's a gateway to a richer life. The website there for you again, getrare.com.au. So get this book, get it for yourself. This is Realty Talk, powered by realty.com.au. Let's rejoin our discussion. And the question, due to lending constraints, should I look now at deploying my investment dollars somewhere else? Bushy gets straight to the point. Uh, simple answer, yes. If you're just leaving your savings in a savings account, uh, you're actually losing money. So you're far better to invest in something that's going to increase either your equity base uh, and returns. Just make sure that it, that it suits your risk profile. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Invest in things that diversify and also you can get access to that money reasonably quickly without significant penalties so that when conditions change, you are in a, a better position to be able to leverage into property. So the answer is yes? Yes. Yes. Eddie, your answer? Yes, as well. And, and to Bush's point, I think you've got to be very aware of what is your long-term strategy. And therefore, you know, do I, am I going to need the money out in a year or two when the lending is easier or, or not? Mm. So it's very important to have the, the long-term strategy regardless. Mm, very good. Rasti, is it unanimous? Uh, no, my answer would be yes, we should be diversifying it, but only where you know where you, what you are doing, where you're investing, because it's yeah. you know, investing for the sake of investing is really a bad idea. Having that, again, going with the approach of getting the right professional who can guide you through uh, is the key here. And also, let's not undermine the power of offset account when we have enough cash. Let's pack it in, which is a risk-free returns on that particular cash balance. So um, my answer would be depends. It depends. Yep, fair enough. That's pretty balanced, and I, I, you know, I'm happy with that, that response. Thank you, gentlemen. I want to get to the question that's been asked now uh, that I mentioned earlier about data, and, and then I also want to get your uh, thoughts on what Labor's going to do or not do with negative gearing. But before that, let me ask this question that came in from someone called Just Learning, and that's that's wonderful because that's what we should all be doing is just learning. Uh, when do I, um, where, sorry, where do I start investing? With a plethora of data and info, I'm super confused as to where to even start. What a, what a great question. Great question. Rasti, what would you say? Uh, um, I'll probably reiterate what Bushy was saying is uh, surround yourself with uh, among successful people out there because your net worth is your net wealth and your net wealth is your net worth. So, uh, there's heaps of data. Uh, the challenge is actually that because it's so much, it's conflicting. It gets into the problem of analysis paralysis and sitting on sideline for long, there's a huge opportunity cost. Having said that, without really knowing what you're doing, it's it could really lead into a very costly mistake. This is not good either. So 
it's really about a mindset and understanding that someone who's doing it successfully, professionally, not just for themselves, but for for this as a profession, uh, helping others is probably the best way. There are quite a few education programs, but my experience having done them myself, unless you put the effort to go out and do it, because it's like swimming. You can't you can do all sort of classes online and whatnot, but unless you go in the pool, try some strokes, that's where you learn. But the coaching you learn to swim. Yeah. is very mm-hmm. is very critical. Same with the mm-hmm. property investing. Looking very- at Having the lens of what to look at is one aspect, but mm. there's, there's so much of data and conflicting views out there. Yeah. It's like picking up the newspaper, isn't it? One day it's a boom, next day it's a bust. You know, yeah. you just, it, it really is quite, quite challenging. Um, Eddie, what, what, how do you get around that, mate? What do you do? Yeah, well, Who do you rely that's on? Where, that's where we were uh, probably seven years ago. We had no idea. But was, we knew we wanted to do something, but we just had no idea where to start. So, so I get, Getting some good advisors definitely it's paramount. I mean, you, I think especially in this the the lending environment that's been the case for probably the last yes six seven years. It's uh you've got so you've got a limited amount of bullets to fire, so you want to fire them well, and there's only one way to fire them well is to get people that have done it for many years that you know that's what they do. End of story. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Rusty said, and it works for probably one percent of, of maybe you know one to five percent of investors maybe when you do a course and you actually do the hard work and and you succeed with with that specific course whatever that may be for most people they do the course and then they i mean there's a lot of work to do after that it's not just doing a course it's like anything nothing happens easily so so for me you're definitely getting good advisors a good team and then just following the, the process yeah, and, and, and don't be afraid to make a mistake is the thing I'd say because, you you know, mm. there is a lot of um, information out there. You could easily become paralysed if you just overanalyze and become too conservative. I, I think, you know, don't be afraid of making mistakes but learn from them. Uh, that that's uh, I think that's the best thing I could say, my own practical experience. Hey, guys, I, 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 Bushy, sorry, did you want to make a comment on that? Or Yeah, I, I think it's all been said, but very quickly, yeah. where would I start with investing? I'd invest in my knowledge. Uh, yeah. Yes, I wouldn't overbury myself, but I wouldn't rush out and buy the first property that I got my hands on because you, you know enough to be dangerous and you don't even know what you don't know at that point in time. So, uh, you know, if I take my own example, and, you know, I'm old and crusty now, guys, as you know, uh, back in the day, and this is back in the 90s, there, was, there wasn't anywhere near the amount of information that you can currently get your hands on. But I read every Australian property investing book that I could possibly get my hands on. Uh, I jumped on the good old Robert Kiyosaki had the cash flow game. Then I bought the game and the whole family played it. So it felt like we were actually getting our hands dirty with the, the, the trials and tribulations of what property was about. And then I made sure I surrounded myself with really good players who'd done what I wanted to do. But I, I'd also say that uh, make sure that uh, you don't ignore your gut. So there's a lot of people who talk a really good story when it comes to property, but if it feels like bullshit in your gut saying, this doesn't feel right to me, honour that. Uh, and make sure that what you pursue, because there's a thousand different ways to make money in property, whatever you do pursue feels right to you and then surround yourself with those people who have done that. Mm, great advice. Great advice. Hey, guys, I want to get to the final topic. We've got a couple of minutes left to go on this broadcast. Um, I, I want to ask you about Labor. And, you know, we've heard some rumours and some little whispers of recent about 
whether or not they're going to play with negative gearing. And, and I, I sort of think back last time this came up, it was a massive issue. Is it likely to rear its head again, Bushy? Uh, in a in a nutshell, uh, I, and I, the only wild card here is we're dealing with politicians, and sadly, I don't have a high opinion of most of them uh, because common sense doesn't seem to feature uh, a lot in the decisions they make. But with Albo and, and the Federal Labor Party breaking their election promise on the modifying the state street tax cuts, it certainly opened the door to speculation around having another crack at it. But uh, I also note that the Treasurer and Albo were very quick to knock this on the head because they know that they actually lost two elections in 2017 and 2019 uh, and they will know that it's political suicide to do that at a time when they've come out with massive targets of building and adding an extra 1.2 million houses to the, the market. 95% of properties that are provided for rental and housing are by private investors. And the numbers there are pretty scary in terms of uh, their sway because, you know, there's about 2.5 uh, million uh, property investors in the country and that means a lot of votes. So I think both from a property supply perspective and also from a political expediency perspective, I think that I could be proven wrong that they're not dumb enough to have another crack. Well, that's all co great common sense but we're not dealing with people who right. deal in common sense. Uh, you're like, you've only got to look at, you know, how Albo's um, switching around his decision of breaking that promise and what that's done to the polls. I mean, they've, they've increased in popularity. So they're the sort of messages, unfortunately, that politicians listen to. Anyway, enough from me. That's on my high horse. Uh, Eddie, your thoughts? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I don't think they'll touch it uh, anytime soon, but I could be wrong, I think. I mean, the politicians have properties themselves. They probably benefit from the negative gearing themselves. So, but yeah, who knows? I mean, I think it'd be political suicide as well because uh, you know a lot of mums and dads have one property, and if you cut the negative gearing, then it's a disaster for them. So, but who, who knows? As Bushy said, they as volatile as you can get. So, hey, yeah. don't don't you watch the news, Eddie? Like we're all greedy investors. You don't you know that? Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we're just wealthy. Yeah, anyway, hey, Rusty, your right. thoughts? Yeah, no, my thoughts are that uh, just just recreating uh, the statistics around it, like how many people are um, actually getting housed in some investors' property. Uh, so it's very unlikely when, as a common sense, doesn't. I mean, the, the whole thing about taxation, it's basically, or any, it's just a god of hand comes in uh, rather than the economic disbalances. So. So while we have this, you know, whether we really talk about stamp duty or the negative gearing, but because it has been so much a norm here in this country, that's how the economics has played out. So if we take that out, the whole reason of, I mean, there's a majority of people who buy investment property because of the tax minimization. So I'll probably comment on that, what it really means if it happens to go that path of not following the common sense is that my take is that it will have only an impact in the short term, when lots of, I guess, investors will take away their propensity to buy investment property because they might be open to buy, for example, owner-occupied home. Instead of going rent investing, they might go and buy their own home um, or, or buying for positive cash flow properties, which are probably getting more rare. So the demand of investment properties will go down, but that will only be in short term because then the supply will catch up and uh, in the sense that they will also bring it down, which is probably 
I guess it will become unaffordable for a common man. So that's the reason why it will not be, I guess, a sensible decision, in my opinion, to take it away. But if that happens, it will only impact the market in the short term. For anyone who's buying for the long term, which property investing should be for, I don't think that should that should really get them worried to even an iota of that because we are buying for the long term and long term it will balance out anyway. So while I think it should not happen, it should not really bother at a regular investor. Gentlemen, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to catching up again real soon. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks, Thanks Kevin. Thanks everyone for joining in. Here's how Realty's discovery search works. Now think of AI as an assistant on your real estate journey. How AI works is by using algorithms and data, the words that you use to describe the type of property you want. By entering what you want, the AI learns and makes predictions or decisions and then shows you the results. So rather than searching by suburb and then property type and land size and so on, simply type in or say what you want. The more you use Realty's AI discovery search, the more accurate it becomes. Unlock bonus content now as a premium subscriber. Hey, before I leave you, make sure that you don't miss a single episode of Realty Talk or Bushy's Get Invested podcast delivered to you each week by subscribing to The Property Hub now on your favourite podcast player or wherever you are listening to or watching the show. Also join the conversation anytime on Facebook at The Property Hub Collective. Thanks to our supporters and content partners, Realty, BMT, Tax Depreciation, Know How Property Finance, Get Rare Property and Apiro Marketing. I'm Kevin Turner and on behalf of Bushy and The Property Hub team, we look forward to seeing you again next week.